0: Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode.
1: Welcome to episode 197 of the GDPR Weekly Show, the number one GDPR podcast worldwide. Coming up in this week's episode, we have news at the ICO that finds Clearview, £7.55 million for UK GDPR breaches. We then travel to America, where Twitter has been fined $150 million for data privacy breaches. We then return to the UK, when the Defence says it will have complete cybersecurity resilience by 2030. We then news that a man has been denied entry to the USA after a data breach by the police service of Northern Ireland. We then travel to Oxford in the UK, where a judge has blasted GDPR for causing a delay to a case and calling the delay absolutely ludicrous. We have news that Russian hackers have declared war on 10 countries after a, a failed attempt to disrupt the Eurovision Song Contest. We have news of a data breach at General Motors in the USA. And then, following news that negotiations have started on a new US EU privacy shield, Matt Srems has issued an open letter concerning that proposed shield. We then travel back to the USA where we have a breach at the Utah haulage firm CR England. And then to California, where Optima Technology have had a data breach. We then travel to Tennessee, where East Tennessee Children's Hospital has had a data breach. And then we look at a more general issue and say, can you have a pan-European data retention policy? We then have research which shows that you should be aware that automated decision-making can violate GDPR. And then finally this week, we have a scary item for anybody who has an iPhone, as it's been discovered that malware can still be installed on iOS 15 even if your device has been switched off. So there's always a full range of articles for you in this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. We hope you find the information useful and informative. If you have any feedback for us, please do email us at feedback at We do read every single piece of feedback we receive, but unfortunately due to the volume of feedback, it's not always possible for us to respond to each piece of feedback individually.
0: Wish there was a simple guide to GDPR? Well, now there is! GDPR made simple. Available now on Amazon.
1: The ICO this week announced the third largest GDPR fine to date of over £7.55 million against the controversial facial recognition database provider Clearview AI. It also issued an enforcement notice against the company ordering Clearview to stop obtaining and using the personal data of UK residents and to delete the data of UK residents from its systems. If you are a regular listener to the G-Public Show, then you have heard us mentioned clearly before in episodes 99, 169, 175 and 186, including their fine which was levied on them by the Italian Data Protection Authority. So what do we know about this fine? Well, the final £7.55 million fine against Clearview follows the ICO's announcement last November of its provisional view to fine Clearview over £17 million. Pounds. Although the Clearview fine reduction is well over 50% of what the ICO provisionally said it was going to fine, it amounts to a less significant reduction than that in the cases of BA and Marriott. We don't yet know the reasons for the reduction, but it's anticipated that representations from Clearview will have played a part. It's important to understand that this ruling is not about a security breach. It's about more extensive UK GDPR breaches reminiscent of the ICO's wide-ranging pre-GDPR action against Equifax. Failing cited by the ICO include Clearview having a lack of appropriate legal basis for processing and failing to process data fairly and transparently. The ICO also highlighted Clearview's data retention practices of breaching UK GDPR as the company failed to have in process a place to stop the data being retained indefinitely. And I think that's an important lesson for all companies to learn, is the increased importance now, which not just the ICO, but data protection authorities across Europe are putting on that companies must have a data retention policy, and not only that it must have a data retention policy, but that it must work, that you must actually be deleting data according to your data retention policy, and it's not just a policy that sits on the shelf and no one ever takes any notice of. And the ISO also found clear view in contravention of the special category data rules in relation to its processing of biometric data, because quite obviously facial recognition is biometric data. It also referenced data subjects' rights failings in relation to clear view's process of requesting a photo when an individual inquired if they were on their database. The action provided a reminder to all organisations that the ISO can and will examine granular UK GDPR compliance, particularly when it has a cause to lift the lid and have a look and see what a company or organisation is doing. In his statement, a company announcement ultimately, the Information Commissioner John Edwards emphasised that the ICO had worked with the Australian Privacy Regulator to bring the action against Clearview and set out his vision that international cooperation is essential to protect people's privacy rights. His statement also highlighted the ICO's work with its European counterparts, with the Commissioner noting that it is a meeting with European regulators next week to facilitate collaboration on tackling global privacy harms. This meeting could be well-timed, given the Government's response to the DCMS Data Protection Reform Consultation is expected imminently, which may signal a move towards greater divergence between UK and EU GDPR regimes. And we've mentioned that a couple of times here recently on GDPR Weekly Show about the promised now UK data reform bill. And we watch with interest to see... A, what comes out as a result of the government's consultation, and B, of course, what will be in the bill itself. And be assured that we'll bring you details of all of that at the very moment that we can, right here on the GDPR Weekly Show. The other thing this action has done is provide greater insight on the ISO's interpretation of the extraterritorial scope of UK GDPR. The ISO statement makes it clear that as this was an international enforcement action against a global company, CWAI. AI, While we do not yet have any clarity on the approach the ICO has taken, the ICO statement references that Clearview is no longer offering its services to UK organisations and that it effectively monitors behaviour of people in the UK. This suggests this may be an enforcement action brought by the ICO on the basis of extraterritorial reach of UK GDPR. In this respect, John Edwards, the UK Information Commissioner, said people expect that their personal information will be respected regardless of where in the world their data is being used. That is why global companies need international enforcement. Working with colleagues around the world helped us to take this action and protect people from such intrusive activity. We've not yet had a response from Clearview, but if we do receive one, we will of course bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show.
0: You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden.
1: To America now, and federal regulators on Wednesday announced that Twitter will pay a $150 million fine to settle allegations that it deceptively used email address and phone numbers it had collected to target advertising in one of the largest privacy settlements federal regulators have reached with a tech giant. The FTC and the Justice Department said the company will also be banned from profiting off the deceptively collected data and be required to notify the more than 140 million users who were affected that used their phone numbers and email addresses for advertising, according to a press release about the statement and the company will be required to implement and maintain a new privacy programme that will require the company to review the security risks of any new products. Associate Attorney General Vanita Dupta said, The $150 million fine reflects the seriousness of the allegations against Twitter, and the substantial new compliance measures to be imposed as a result of today's proposed settlement will help prevent further misleading tactics that threaten users' privacy. The fine amounts to about 13% of Twitter's revenue in the first quarter of 2022. As backing for the settlement, the U.S. government filed a complaint against the company on Wednesday in the federal court in the Northern District of California, alleging that Twitter broke federal law as well as a 2011 order it reached with the FTC over allegations that it had failed to safeguard personal information. Keeping data secure and respecting privacy is something we take extremely seriously and we've cooperated with the FTC every step of the way, a spokesperson for Twitter said. Moving forward, we will continue to make investments in this work, including building and evolving processes implementing technical measures, and conducting regular auditing and reporting to ensure we are mitigating risk at every level of function within Twitter. Twitter first announced in 2019 that it had inadvertently mishandled users' email and phone numbers for advertising purposes, one in a string of data privacy and security mishaps at the company. More recently, in 2020, the company suffered a data breach that targeted high-profile politicians and billionaires, including Elon Musk, who also has now expressed an interest in purchasing Twitter. Under the settlement Twitter will be required to give people other means to verify their accounts such as security keys or mobile apps that do not involve phone numbers. The company will also have to limit access to users' data and notify the FTC if it experiences a data breach. The complaint had the backing of both Democrats and Republicans on the FTC. We reject the characterization of substantial penalties as a slap on the wrist. Republican Commissioners Noah Phillips and Christine Wilson said in a joint statement. Penalties matter then and now, and so do the privacy programmes and assessments that orders like today's command.
0: Contact us on Helpdesk at GDPRWeeklyShow.com
1: Returning to the UK now, and the UK Ministry of Defence has announced its ambition to become resilient to all known cybersecurity vulnerabilities and cyber attack methods by no later than 2030. It will also aim to have the Department's critical functions significantly hardened to cyber attacks by 2026 in a broad plan underpinned by a brand new MOD-specific Secure-by-Design program. The principle the Secure-by-Design will run throughout the MOD and apply to every one of its capabilities so that they can harness emerging technologies like automation and quantum computing, the government has said. The MOD's Secure-by-Design program will apply to the hardware and products the department procures and will bleed into its staff ways of working too. All of the department's capabilities, which include all tools, platforms and devices that are potentially vulnerable to cyber-attacks, will be scrutinised and have the secure-by-design thinking applied to them to maximise security. Superior-by-design will also be applied to the whole of the MOD's digital enterprise, a term it uses to describe the digital backbone on which all its capabilities depend, ensuring things like networks, applications and data are all safeguarded. The Ministry of Defence has a key role to play in the UK being a responsible cyber power, said Christine Maxwell, Director of Cyber Defence and Risk at the MOD. This means it has never been more important to focus and reset defensive cyber. This strategy is central to actively tackling threats to cyber security, securing the digital backbone and underpinning defence's ability to operate freely in cyberspace. We all have a role to play to build a cyber resilient defence. Before the MID can work on embedding security by design throughout the organisation, it said there are several obstacles it needs to overcome, such as the culture of the department needing to become more focused and conscious on cyber security. It also needs to address the mounting technological debt across the Ministry of Defence and accelerate the elimination of obsolete technologies from the digital environment. The concept of cyber resilience is one of the UK's National Cyber Security Centre has been touting for some time and was one of the main watchwords at a recent conference. If you really focus on the basics and you focus on the resilient side and you build your defences and you focus more on yourself and less than your adversary, actually that plays much to your favour when perhaps you find yourself faced with that conflict. I think very much resilience is the line that we would draw from this, said Paul Chichester, Director of Operations at the National Cybersecurity Centre. The US has also been quick to implement new rules at the federal level to ensure its public sector departments are also protected against cyber attacks. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Agency, the CISA, mandated that all federal government departments needed to have a hundreds long list of the most commonly exploited vulnerabilities packed by the twenty second of may twenty twenty two. We must shape the secure digital backbone as a game-changing transformation that will reset cyber defence, said Lawrence Lee, second permanent under-secretary at the UK Ministry of Defence. We will build resilience into our critical capabilities and systems and make new capabilities secure by design. Our relationship with industry will fundamentally shift to work ever closer in wider defence and security. Our people will become increasingly cyber-aware to become sensors, of their abnormal and informed decision-makers. To Northern Ireland now, and the police ombudsman has revealed that a man was refused travel to the US after a police service of Northern Ireland data breach. The ombudsman has made a number of recommendations after the force shared the personal information of 152 people with external law enforcement agencies. Concerns have been raised after the police service of Northern Ireland admitted sharing the information in a matter that did not comply with data protection. Police ombudsman Marie Anderson revealed that sensitive information relating to four members of one family, three brothers and their mother, had been inappropriately shared by police with the United States Department of Homeland Security and an official in the U.S. Consulate in Belfast. Our office confirmed the information had not been requested by U.S. authorities and included photographs and criminal records of the brothers, as well as details about their mother. The Ombudsman said one of the brothers had been subject to bail conditions which were varied by a judge to allow him to travel to the U.S. for a family holiday. However, on the day before he was due to travel, a police officer in the Police Service of Northern Ireland's Extradition and International Mutual Assistance Unit sent details about him, his two brothers and his mother to US authorities. The man was refused travel and his bail was reinstated. It was also emerged that the man had planned to travel to Spain and an international alert was placed on his records that he and anyone accompanying him would be stopped from entering the country. A police officer also stated in an email that he may have been able to have the man's passport cancelled the Ombudsman's office said. The Ombudsman investigated potential breaches of Article 8 of the Human Rights Act which relates to the right to respect for private and family life. Potential offences were also considered in relation to the Computer Misuse Act and the Data Protection Act. No evidence of criminality was found. Ms Anderson said the failures identified were organisational rather than matters of individual culpability by police officers. Among recommendations made were that the Police Service in Northern Ireland should ensure that the sharing of information with foreign agencies is done in a lawful manner and it should seek advice from the Information Commissioner's Office. She also recommended that the Police Service in Northern Ireland should review its guidance and policies and ensure that staff within the Expedition and International Mutual Assistance Unit were appropriately trained on relevant data protection legislation and obligations on public authorities. Solicitor Owen Beatty of KRW Law represents several people impacted by the data breach. What is not clear is how this happened or the nature of the information that has been leaked, he said. Mr. Beatty said his clients are aggrieved and that he's been instructed to issue legal proceedings against the Chief Constable for this data breach and to secure answers as to what has occurred here. If we get any further update on this, either from KRW Law or from the Police Service of Northern Ireland, we will bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Show.
0: Wish there was a simple guide to GDPR? Well, now there is. GDPR made simple. Available now on Amazon.
1: To Oxford in the UK now and a judge summoned a senior Crown Prosecutor to Court after the Crown Prosecution Service shrugged off an order to release unblurred CCTV footage. Judge Michael Deadhill QC, had blasted as completely ludicrous a four-hour hold-up in starting the trial of alleged Barton brawler Unday Williams late last year. His comments can now be reported after reporting restrictions were lifted when Williams pleaded guilty this week to affray and knife possession. Two other people included convicted killer Lewis Brown, who will be sentenced alongside Williams next month for their involvement with the affray on June 2nd last year. Last November, lawyers for the Crown Prosecution Service insisted that a white car's number plate be blurred out before a video, which allegedly showed Williams brandishing a machete in Barton, could be released to the defendant's barristers. The CBS office lawyer suggested that the blurring was required in order to comply with data protection regulations. But that decision proved farcical when, after a four-hour hold-up, another camera angle was played to Oxford Crown Court that showed the unblurred plate of a mobile disco DJ's van parked next to the white car. We've been arguing over something completely ludicrous, a large waste of taxpayers' money, when we've got a huge fat log of cases in criminal torts, Judge Gledhill told the prosecuting barrister. Mr. DeVaris, the prosecuting barrister, explained that CPS District 2 prosecutors' reasoning for not releasing the unblurred video, as the judge had ordered, citing concerns that it needed to be compliant with GDPR. Judge Gledhill said, If a judge makes an order, even if he's erred in law, the answer is not to disobey the order, it is to fully explain why the judge was heard. The district Crown Prosecutor could not attend the Crown Court as he'd been ordered to self-isolate with COVID, the judge was told. However, later in the week, that lawyer's boss, the senior Crown Prosecutor, appeared in court in person to apologise to Judge Gledhill and explain that his order for the unredacted footage to be released had been misunderstood. Her representations to the judge were heard behind closed doors. However, Judge Gledhill said he had been assured that the situation would not happen in the future. He explained he had ordered the disclosure of the unpixelated footage in case anyone had been in the white car, had, be, had seen the bull, and the number of it could be used to trace the registered owner. As it transpired, when the pixelated material was uploaded, it was perfectly obvious the vehicle was unoccupied, he said. As a result, of the limited information i had available, I took the view it was on the interest of justice, and in order to expedite the beginning of this trial, I made an order ordering the uploading of the material without any pixelation. Unfortunately, that order was not complied with. It may very well be those receiving the information from Mr. Devaris, who prosecutes this case, did not understand that I was in fact making an order. I was told the reason for the pixelation was GDPR, but it had transpired a white van parked adjacent to the vehicle had the name of its company on the side of the vehicle, which was easily read by looking at the video, and indeed the registration number on that van was also apparent. Today I have asked for the senior trial Prosecutors to come along to explain to me how this came about. She has explained to me that the application of data protection regulation was in fact not complied with, in the preparation of this case, because those details on the white van should not have been disclosed, but should also have been pixelated. The judge said the senior trial prostitute accepted that the CPS should have made proper representations explaining why his order was disobeyed. I've come to the conclusion that it was not a deliberate breach of the court order. It was a regrettable misunderstanding. I've accepted the explanation of the CPS, and I'm assured this situation will not happen in the future, the judge said. The trial later had to be abandoned. Williams of Westlands Drive, Oxford, returned to court this week for a second attempt at trying the case. Before a jury could be sworn, the defendant entered a guilty pleas to a fray and possession of a knife.
0: You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden.
1: Russian-linked hackers have claimed to have disrupted the infrastructure of Italy's state police anti-cybertrime unit after it thwarted hacking attempts on the Eurovision Song Contest. Actors from the Killnet group announced in the early hours of Monday morning that claims made by Italian state police referring to the disruption of cyber attacks whilst the contest was ongoing were false. In the same announcement, Killnet also declared war on 10 countries, including the deceitful police of Italy, and appeared to mock the authority claiming Killnet was responsible for the seemingly offline website of the police's cyber department. The website of Italy's anti-cybercrime organisation was involved in the prevention of Russian-linked hacking attempts on the Eurovision Song Contest voting system, Italian State Police said. The unit assigned officers to work 24 hours a day dedicated to protecting Eurovision's infrastructure, which was ultimately attacked by the Russian-linked Killnet and Legion hacking groups. Italian State Police confirmed its response on Sunday, saying they were able to neutralise and repel the attack. Various computer attacks of a distributed denial of service nature were detected at network infrastructure during the voting operations and the singing performance and were mitigated in collaboration with ICTRI and Eurovision TV management, the state police said. This year's Eurovision Song Contest was held in Turin, Italy, and saw Tala from Ukraine crowned a champion after many predicted the country to win following Russia's invasion. Authorities said the DDoS attacks were prevented during the competition's Grand Final and during the final voting stages. State Police also said they scoured the hacking group's associated telegram channels to glean intelligence that led to the prevention of other incidents and the identification of the hacker's location. Days before the Eurovision Song Contest, Italian authorities reported that the same killnet hackers had targeted the websites of the Italian National Health Institute and the Automobile Club d'Italia, and national driver's association. The Italian Senate's website was also targeted in an attack which saw hackers take down web pages for roughly an hour. Italian Senate Speaker Elisabetta Casaletti said via Twitter that no damage was sustained from the damage on the Senate. Thanks to the technicians for the immediate intervention, she said. These are serious episodes which should not be underestimated. We will continue to keep our guard up. KillNet has been a group on the watch list of the International Cybercrime Authorities for some time, with the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance previously releasing a joint cyber security advisory naming KillNet as one of the biggest threats to the critical infrastructure. Amongst other recent attacks, the Alliance pointed to a March DDoS attack on Bradley International Airport in Connecticut, as previous work carried out by the group, which has also released a video pledging support to Russia. Contact
0: us on Helpdesk at GDPRWeeklyShow.com
1: U.S. automobile manufacturer General Motors has alerted customers of a data breach due to a credential stuffing attack last month. The attack exposed customers' private information and allowed hackers to redeem reward points for gift cards. According to the data breach notification, General Motors detected a malicious logging activity between April 11th and April 29th, and upon discovery, General Motors suspended the redemption of customer rewards points for gift cards and notified those affected by the breach. Based on the investigation, General Motors says there's no evidence that login information was obtained from General Motors itself. We believe that unauthorised parties gained access to customer login credentials that were previously compromised on other non-General Motors sites and then reused their credentials on the customer's General Motors account, General Motors says. Through this malicious activity, attackers may have gained access to limited personal information of General Motors online or mobile application accounts, including users' first and last name, personal email address, personal address, username and phone number for registered family members tied to their account, last known and saved favourite location information, currently subscribed on star package, if applicable, family members' avatars and photos, if they've been uploaded, profile picture, search and destination information, reward card activity and fraudulently redeemed reward points. The breach generated account did not include date of birth, social security number, driver's licence number, credit card information or bank account information as that information is not stored in the General Motors account, the company said. If we get any further updates on this from General Motors, we will of course bring it to you in the next row of episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. As we wait for details of what will no doubt become the EU-US Privacy Shield Mark II, the person who sparked all the issues with the original EU-US Privacy Shield, Matt Rems, has issued an open letter. In the letter, he says, "We take note of the announcement of agreement in principle for a new transatlantic data privacy framework. We understand that the future deal, agreed in principle, is mainly based on a political agreement between Commission President von der Leyen and U.S. President Joe Biden, but it is not the result of material changes to U.S. law in response to CJEU's judgment. This approach seems to repeat the privacy shield agreement and is deeply concerning. We are aware that the announcement only outlines rough ideas and headlines." but that the final text still needs to be negotiated. The following preliminary observations are therefore based on a limited political announcement and further details that were informally shared with stakeholders in various public or semi-public formats by the EU and the US. Based on these statements, we understand that the US has rejected any material projections from non-US persons and is continuing to discriminate against non-US persons by refusing baseline protection, such as judicial approval of individual surveillance measures. We understand that the envisioned deal will largely rely on U.S. executive orders. Having worked on this matter with U.S. surveillance experts and lawyers, such executive orders seem to be structurally insufficient to meet the requirements of the CJEU. Based on the known cornerstones, we warn in those on both sides of the Atlantic, the Council of the EU, the EDPB, and the LIBE Committee of the European Parliament, the announced framework risk sharing the same fate as its two predecessors in front of the CJEU unless substantive legislative reforms are conducted in the United States, which warned negotiators to continue working for a long-standing privacy-reserving solution for transatlantic flows to avoid the need for a SREMS 3 decision. The current approach may cause further lead to uncertainty for citizens and businesses for years to come, a fear that it was also voiced by industry representatives in reaction to the agreement in principle. We are fully aware that this is everything but an easy task, but the investment in getting it right would not only ensure that this matter is solved in the long run, but also benefit citizens and the autonomy on both sides. To reach that goal, we present the following more detailed observations and recommendations. 1. Applying a correct proportionality test on U.S. surveillance law under Article 8 CFR. We understand that U.S. negotiators do not plan to seek amendments to U.S. statutory law in relation to material surveillance, but plan to essentially replace Presidential Policy Directive 28, PPD 28, on signals intelligence activities with a new executive order that would include the words necessary and proportionate. It seems that the European Commission aims at finding that these words in the US executive order should be seen as equivalent to the EU proportionality test in Article 52 of the Charter of Fundamental Rights. However, it is hard to see how existing US surveillance can be necessary and proportionate under European law, if the CJEU is explicitly found the opposite in two judgments. This approach seems to be insufficient for at least the following reasons. In both CJEU judgments, SWEMS 1 and SWEMS 2, the court has clearly held that US surveillance laws and practices violate Article 7, 8 and 47 of the Charter of Fundamental Rights. The CJEU has even explicitly found these laws and practices not to be necessary and proportionate. The SWEMS 2 ruling really was discovered taking PBT 28, as a relevant executive directive at the time, into account. As the European Commission and the US Government have argued before the CJEU, PPD 28 already includes the wording as tailored as feasible, which the Commission has interpreted as equivalent to proportionality under Article 52 of the CFR. The CJEU has rejected this idea. We fail to see our laws and practices that the CJEU has explicitly found not to be necessary and proportionate to suddenly convince the CJEU if they relabeled necessary and proportionate instead of tailored as feasible. We understand that while the U.S. may adopt these words, it has not agreed to limiting surveillance of non-U.S. data subjects in any material way. Specifically, the U.S. has not announced any intention to limit or revise surveillance practices conducted under the laws and programs FISA-702, EO-12333, PRISM and Upstream, specifically mentioned by the CJEU in its ruling. The U.S. has also not indicated it would enact any changes to put an end to its bulk surveillance practices the surveillance programmes seem to continue as they are. The CJEU has conducted a proportionality test under Article 52 of the CFR and concluded that US surveillance practices failed that test. If the US was to integrate the concept of necessity and proportionality, this would mean stopping or severely limiting these surveillance practices. The negotiators are clear that this is not intended. The negotiators therefore think merely copy the words of the CFR and CJEU case law to a US executive order, but will likely apply a different meaning than the CJEU as this would otherwise have to lead to a stop of the upstream and downstream previously the Prism programme under section seven hundred and two of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, the FISA, and an bulk surveillance under Executive Order twelve thousand three hundred and thirty three. We are further concerned that executive orders typically do not confer third party rights. It seems that even if a necessary and proportionate testing line with Article fifty two of the CFR would be implemented in executive order any data subject may not be able to enforce such limitations in court. In summary, this approach seems to merely satisfy the political, diplomatic and PR requirements of both sides, but seems to ignore the fact that the CJEU has already found the US surveillance is not necessary in proportionate and the US will continue these practices. Turning now to creating meaningful judicial redress under Article 47 of CFR, we understand that the US negotiators do not plan to amend US law to create avenues for judicial redress for EU data subjects. Instead, the U.S. executive should form a new body within the executive branch, similar to Phileas' ombudsperson, but under the authority of the Advocate General, they would deal with potential violations of U.S. law and executive orders. This body, called the Data Protection Review Court, will, contrary to the name, not be a court but an executive body. It will be part of the executive branch with limited independence. We understand that EU data subjects would not be able to access information about potential surveillance operations concerning them during proceedings, and they would not be able to appeal decisions from this court. A fully independent judicial body established under Article 3 of the US Constitution. This approach seems to violate the CJEU case law in at least the following aspect. The proposed solution does not provide for judicial redress but for a redress body within the executive branch, similar to the ombudsperson, which the CJEU found not just to be disproportionate but a breach of the essence of Article 47 of the CFR. Just naming the executive body at court does not create judicial redress the approach seems to be better described as an ombudsman plus. It's hard to see how this new body will fulfill the formal requirements of a court or tribunal under Article 47 of the CFR, especially when compared to ongoing cases of standards applied within the EU, for example in Poland and Hungary. The CJEU would be asked to apply a high Article 47 CFR standard within the CFU, but a low Article 47 CFR standard for the US State of Protection Review Court. It would be a European Commission that would have to convince the CJEU of these different standards, under Article 47 CFR. We understand that the new court would continue to operate like the current office person and will neither confirm nor deny if a person was subject to surveillance and if there was a breach of US law. It is our understanding that the data subject will have no direct or indirect option to see evidence, request discovery, question the opponent or receive a reasoned judgment. This will make it a rubber stamp institution with no practical relevance. This rubber stamp approach will also limit the options for any potentially and appeal to any secondary body. If the Data Protection Review Court is bound to send a prescribed standard answer, we to see that there is room for any informed or meaningful material or appeal. If there is only one possible predefined outcome in each case, there seems to be hardly any case where a citizen may raise an error, as there seems to be only one possible answer. There are fundamental questions if US doctrines like state secrets were applied to these bodies and further limit any option for a fair hearing. We understand the US government will continue to rely on these doctrines. In summary, we failed to see how this new talk would be compliant with Article 47 of CFR, especially in the light of recent CJEU case law on US surveillance, but also in light of CJEU case law on judicial redress and the rule of law in EU member states. It seems the CJEU would have to develop a separate Article 47 CFR test for the US to find an accepted body producing rubber stamp responses as indeed a form of judicial redress. We failed to see how such a development of CJEU case law is remotely realistic or even desirable. 3. The need to update commercial privacy protections. In addition to the shortcomings of the announced agreement in principle linked to the latter reforms on US surveillance and laws, we also caution the EU negotiators about the need to update the commercial data protection obligations under any future deal. We are concerned that the EU and US negotiators do not seem to plan any updates to the Privacy Shield principles itself. We understand that the Privacy Shield principles and certifications would not be touched or even be named. This is hugely problematic as the principles are largely based on the Safe Harbour Principles from 2000, with only minor updates in 2016. They are not in line with GDPR requirements, which became applicable in 2018. In fact, the Privacy Shield Principles even refer to the non-longer applicable Directive 95-46-EC and not the GDPR. We highlight here a few examples of some of the many deficiencies of the Privacy Shield Principles and where they depart from GDPR. The privacy shield principles do not have a general requirement for a legal basis as on Article 6 Paragraph 1 of GDPR and Article 8 Paragraph 2 of the Charter of Fundamental Rights. In fact, there's only a so-called notice and choice approach with a right to reject, opt-out, especially because the principles usually apply to the sub-processors with no direct contact with a data subject. There seems to be hardly a realistic scenario where data subject will even be notified about any problematic processing. The privacy shield principles do not require data processing to be necessary as required by Article 5, Paragraph 1, Subparagraph C of GDPR and Article 52, Paragraph 1 of CFR, but only relevant. Most elements of the right to access under Article 15 of GDPR and Article 8, Paragraph 2 of the Charter of Fundamental Rights are not reflected in the privacy-shield principles. The redress mechanism provided under the principles is based on private arbitration, a system that's banned in relation to consumers in the EU since Directive 93/13/EC. The private arbitration services are paid by the US company and do not have the necessary supervision and detection mechanisms, nor powers that even remotely resemble the powers of EU supervised authorities under Article fifty eight of GDPR. There are multiple steps for any arbitration ruling to be actually enforceable under US law. There are countless further examples where the privacy shield principles are not essentially equivalent to GDPR and therefore allow US competitors to operate on the European market without complying with EU law. Even if the matter of US surveillance will be solved, any new agreement may be invalidated by the CJEU on the basis that the privacy shield principles are not at all essentially equivalent to GDPR. So turn to the future of international data transfers. We are sorry to see that negotiators have not used this opportunity to ensure that the human rights to privacy and data protection are protected on both sides of the Atlantic and independent geographic location or citizenship. We are deeply concerned that the global internet and the free flow of personal data is only possible if protections are not based on historic and nationalistic concepts such as citizenship. While the GDPR and Articles 7, 8 and 47 CFR are human rights applied to any user independent of national ties FISA 702 and the relevant executive orders in the US continue to follow an archaic idea of US persons and non-US persons This is not just causing violations of human rights but also seems to undermine the alleged aims of these surveillance laws We know that most current dangers such as homegrown terrorism, espionage and alike, like are not based on citizenship as a target we talk on negotiators and other relevant stakeholders, including such as the US tech industry, to call traditional nationalistic concepts into question. If the internet should not know national borders, our privacy rights and surveillance laws must equally overcome nationalistic concepts. One option would be international agreements among democratic nations. Chapter 5 of GDPR already allows for free of data if protections are essentially equivalent. We regret that national surveillance laws in the US and the EU still hold on to concepts like citizenship, and so far that modern interoperability clauses. This conflict of interoperable privacy protections and nationalistic surveillance laws hinder international data flows, trade and convergence. In conclusion, our reaction to any new adequacy decision, as our litigation is always aimed at ensuring a durable solution that both protects user data and allows free data flows, we will be first to applaud any such outcome. We are still hopeful that any final text can overcome the shortcomings highlighted in this letter, and we encourage the negotiators on both sides of the Atlantic to advance much-needed reforms on US law. In the absence of these legislative changes, we're concerned that any future agreement would be, again, based on political hopes instead of legal realities. We're especially concerned that the European Commission may knowingly adopt another unlawful adjuvacy decision with the aim of undermining the CJEU's judgments. This is often referred to as buying another couple of years. This may not only lead to an endless ping-pong between Brussels and Luxembourg, but also threatens the trust in the rule of law and the CFR on a European level. In the light of a foregoing, NOYB, that's Max Rem's organisation, is prepared to challenge any final accuracy decision that would fail to provide the needed legal certainty. In case such legislation is indeed necessary, we especially focus on a quick and efficient part of the CJEU to reach a rapid decision. We hope that this will ensure a shorter period of legal uncertainty in the case of any ill-conceived political agreement. Such adequacy may include a request for the CJEU to suspend the application of any third version of a US adequacy decision. Such an option is foreseen in Article 278 TFEU and could ensure that the European Commission is not undermining the CJEU by passing further on law for adequacy decisions in an attempt to outpace the CJEU's review of the same. We hope these preliminary observations are useful to you. We are available to you in case you have any questions and would like to provide us with further clarifications on the envisioned new deal. Sincerely, Matt Srems, Honorary Chairman, NOYB. If we get any update from the CJEU or the EDPB in response to Matt Srems' letter, we will, of course, bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Show.
0: Wish there was a simple guide to GDPR? Well, now there is. GDPR Made Simple. Available now on Amazon.
1: To Utah now and truckload carrier CR England has notified customers this week that their personal information may have been compromised in a data breach that occurred last autumn. A CR England spokesperson confirmed the letter said and said the company had been the victim of unauthorised activity in its systems on October 30, 2021. In response, we immediately began containment, mitigation and restoration efforts to terminate the activity and to secure our network, systems and data, the letter said. In addition, we retained independent cybersecurity experts in the a for forensic investigation into the incident and assisted in determining what happened. The process was not created. and the CR England letter said it was not until April the 20th this year that the company included the files affected by the data breach contained some of your personal information. In a post on the legal website JD Supra, Richard Consol, the law firm of Consol & Associates, said the breach is believed to have affected roughly 224,500 people whose social security numbers may have been compromised. In a statement, TJ England, the company's chief legal officer, said it was the first such breach that CR England has experienced. CR England has notified potentially affected individuals and set up a call centre to address any questions from those individuals, he said. CR England has no reason to believe that any information involved was or will be published, shared or otherwise misused. Following the breach and leading up to the April 20 conclusion about the impact of the cyber attack, the company reviewed the affected files to identify the individuals whose personal information may have been impacted by the incident and categories of information involved for each individual. CR England said it was offering its affected customers one or two years of complementary identity theft protection from IDX, which is described as a data breach and identity recovery services expert. It also notified the FBI of the breach.
0: Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com.
1: To California now, and Optima Technology Incorporated. A electronic device manufacturer based in Fremont, California, which manufactures visual displays such as projectors, LED displays and interactive flat panels, has had a data breach. The company says that its investigation is still ongoing, however the company has confirmed it was the target of a ransomware attack. As a result of the attack, the unauthorised parties had access to certain files on the Optima network between April the 21st, 2022, and May the 1st, 2022. Upon discovering that sensitive consumer data was accessible to an unauthorized party, Optima Technology then reviewed the effective files to determine exactly what information had been compromised. While the company is still in the process of identifying all affected parties, it notes that breached information may include an individual's name, social security number, driver's licence or state identification number, government-issued identification card, financial account information or payment information, health insurance information, usernames and passwords. On May the 24th, 2022, Ultimate Technology sent out data breach letters to all individuals whose information was compromised as a result of a recent data security incident.
0: You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden.
1: To Tennessee now, and the East Tennessee Children's Hospital has had a data breach. The East Tennessee Children's Hospital is one of four comprehensive regional paediatric centres in Tennessee, and has provided on hand that specializes in a wide range of pediatric health issues. The hospital serves patients throughout the Southeast region of the United States, including Southeast Kentucky, Southeast Virginia, and various counties in Tennessee. The hospital has more than 2,000 employees, including 405 doctors, and generates approximately 300 million in revenue every year. The hospital has reported a data breach involving patients' names, contact information, dates of birth, medical record numbers, medical history information and social security numbers. The hospital believes that as many as 422,531 individuals' information may have been accessed. It's understood that on March 13th, 2022, the hospital first detected unusual activity across its computer network. This prompted the hospital to conduct an investigation into the incident. The hospital's investigation revealed that certain files of its network were accessed and potentially copied between March 11th, 2022 and March 14th, 2022. Upon discovering that some of its files were compromised, the hospital then reviewed the affected files to determine exactly what information was accessible to the unauthorised party and which patients have been impacted. While the breached information varies depending on the individual, it may include name, contact information, date of birth, medical record number, medical history information and the social security number. If we receive any further update from the hospital on this data breach, we will it to you in the next verbal episode of the Chief College Show. We've mentioned in recent episodes of the GDPR Weekly show that various data protection authorities, including the ICO here in the UK, are starting to pay far more attention to data retention policies and also ensuring that not only do you have a data retention policy, but you actually act on it and you only keep the data for as long as you've said you will. Now some companies that operate across Europe have said, well, Can't we just have one data retention policy that applies right across our operations? Well, there could be problems with that because, for instance, in Bulgaria, employment contracts and any amendments or termination details to do with those contracts need to be kept for 50, yes, five, zero, years after termination of employment. Now, it'd be probably hard to justify keeping employees' details for 50 years after they've finished with you in a country like the UK, because we have no requirement to keep records for that long. But in Bulgaria, obviously, it is the case. So if you were in the UK and Bulgaria, I think you couldn't have the same document retention policy across both segments of your organisation. It just wouldn't work. So what can you do when you're putting your retention policy together? Well, first of all, be clear what data you hold and what's required for your business. Once you've got that, then talk to the teams on the ground, the people who are actually using that data, about how they retain that data in practice, what they do. Do they ever actually check whether they've got out-of-date information they're still holding? Obviously, I understand the legal requirements in each country and also what the market practice is. And indeed, you might also want to consider what the penalties are for non-compliance. Consider how active the local regulators are and whether there have been any recent fines for non-compliance. Our advice on that would be to say, Do bear in mind that companies have recently been fined up to €10,000 simply for not having a data retention policy or having a data retention policy and not ensuring that it's activated. But on drawing up your policy, you might want to consider, if you are pan-European, which countries you have most employees or most customers in, and therefore, is it better to shape your overall document data retention policy towards those countries or still to have individual ones for each country? It's going to need to be taken on a case-by-case basis, and if you need any help drawing up your data retention policy, then please do contact us using the contact details that are coming up right now.
0: Contact us on Helpdesk at GDPRWeeklyShow.com
1: Artificial intelligence and automation have emerged as one of the core tools that modern decision makers rely on to work more efficiently. In fact, at the start of the pandemic, 79% of organisations reported using artificial intelligence to make decisions. While automated decision making has enabled organisations to optimise their operations, it's also opened the door to some serious compliance violations. Less than a week ago, the Future of Privacy Forum, a Washington-based global non-profit focusing on data privacy, released a report analysing GDPR and how it applied to automated decision making. The report elaborated on several key cases of automated decision-making caused non-compliance with GDPR. One of the most alarming findings was that consent to partake in an automated decision-making system wasn't sufficient if a data subject wasn't adequately informed about the logic behind it. Case studies examined in the report include facial recognition technologies, algorithmic management of platform workers, automated screening of job applications, artificial intelligence solutions with customer emotion recognition, and automated credit scoring. One of the co-authors of the report, Gabriela Zanfa Fortuna, Vice President for Global Privacy at the Foundation, highlights that the GDPR not only applies to manual data collection, but also applies to data collected for automated decision-making. All automated decision-making relying on or resulting in personal data must comply with a whole set of rules in GDPR, including data minimisation, purpose limitation, transparency obligations, fairness requirements, and so on, she said. However, lack of transparency over the decision-making process can be what causes many organisations to fall foul of GDPR's requirements. Our report shows that the breach is often identified in cases involving automated decision-making through breaches of lawful grounds for processing, such as obtaining consent, which is invalid because there's not enough transparency about the automated decision-making, or not having any lawful grounds in place, breaches related to lack of transparency, or breaches of Article 22 of GDPR. Under Article 22 of GDPR, data subjects have the right not to be subject to a decision based solely on automated processing, such as profiling or any activity that produces legal effect concerning him or her or similarly significantly affects him or her. In other words, any organisation that uses an EU data subject's information as part of an automated decision-making process needs to gather explicit consent and clearly explain the purpose and process of the analysis. It's also important to note that if these restrictions don't apply, if automated decision-making is necessary, for entering into performing a contract between the subject and the data controller. For organisations that want to ensure that their decision-making complies with GDPR, the report recommends that organisations first verify whether their decision-making process relies on or results in the creation of personal data. If personal data is used or created during the process, then the organisation will need to identify if they need to collect consent from the data subject. For instance, if data collected falls under the category of sensitive data like biometric data, which requires special controls. And remember, since the 2nd of September last year, children's data is automatically regarded as sensitive data. She also recommends that organisations increase transparency over how their decision-making process works, saying explain to data subjects how they use their data. At the same time, organisations should also conduct data protection impact assessments, DPIAs, to avoid running into problems with data protection authorities in Europe that consider automated decision-making to be a form of processing personal data that requires additional protection. And finally, a story of concern if you're an iPhone user. A team of German researchers have discovered a new threat model affecting Apple iPhones that allows malware to be installed on a device even when it's switched off. Research were able to show that malware could be installed on an iPhone's Bluetooth chip one of the few components that both remain active after the device is shut down and also has access to an iPhone secure element. The discovery is reliant on iPhone users running iOS 15 or later since this was a release that added the functionality to find the device even after it's been shut down. Most wireless chips remain activated on an iPhone for users who have enabled to Find My Network setting in Apple's Find My app even if it's been manually powered down. These wireless chips, Bluetooth, NFC, and Ultra Wideband. Are all hardwired to the phone's secure element, the area in which secrets are stored, and can therefore no longer be trusted components of the device, the researchers said, given that they're accessible after a shutdown. The researchers were able to write to the Bluetooth chip in an iPhone 13 by exploiting a legacy feature that requires iOS to be able to write to the executable RAM regions using a vendor specific host controller interface demand. Attackers could theoretically modify the custom functionality of the Bluetooth chip during the low power mode via malware to send the device's location to the attacker or add new functionality entirely, the researchers said in the paper. We must stress that there is no evidence that this exploit is currently being used in the wild. Businesses that have equipped their workforce with iPhones running iOS 15 or later should consider turning off the Find My Network as a device policy before issuing the phones to employees. The researchers did stipulate that the Find My Network feature did overall improve the security of the iPhone Despite the new threat model, the new functionality presents. We've contacted Apple for a response, but the time agenda broadcast, we've not yet heard back from them.
0: Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com.
1: We hope that you've enjoyed this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show and that you found the information useful and informative. We do really appreciate your feedback, so please do email us at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com with any comments you might have about the articles we've raised this week or indeed any suggestions you might have for improvements to the show. The GDPR Weekly Show is an insurance production. Please be advised that any advice given during the show is general in nature and should not be taken as specific legal advice. You should always seek legal advice according to your own specific circumstances. Until next time, bye bye!